Good morning. Um, my name's Dan Steele. I'm the pastor at Mordemore Church. Let me lead us in prayer before we have a look at those verses together that Arthur read for us. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank and praise you that you are, you are a speaking God. Thank you that you've revealed yourself to us uh, in your son and in your word about him that we have in our hands now. We pray that as we look at these verses together, we pray it wouldn't simply be a an exercise in understanding, but rather that they might capture our hearts and our minds. Speak to us, we pray. Soften our hard hearts, open our deaf ears, that we might hear your voice, and that that voice would nourish us and keep us going. In Jesus' name, amen. I was, um, I was reading an interview recently um, regarding... Uh, well, it, it was with a, a number of prisoners um, with the na- at the now infamous uh, detention centre at Guantanamo Bay and all kinds of things that we could say, and this is not meant to be a comment on detention camps, or not a political statement particularly, but what struck me in the interview was a number of the detainees who were there um, were struggling not so much with the living conditions or the frustrations or, or any of the real physical aspects of their their experiences, though they were horrible, but actually what was most gut-wrenchingly hard for a number of the prisoners was actually their lack of hope. Actually, it'd been more than that. There had been glimmers of hope for a time with different political transitions. There had been the possibility of a way out of progress, the door opening just ajar for them, and then it had been slammed closed again. Have a listen to this. Um, from that interview is with a number of legal groups representing some of the prisoners. And the lawyer said, the last time I visited Guantanamo, there was certainly a sense of desperation, a sense that there was no hope left, a sense that many men would take any opportunity they had just to leave. And at the same time, many felt there simply was no chance, no chance that they would ever leave. And he continues, so a new kind of torture has come to be within the last two years that there is little to no hope. Isn't that a striking phrase? Life without hope is is a new kind of torture for them. Of course, it's a very deliberate tactic by some who know that to remove hope is to break someone, it's to win that battle, to destroy them, to dehumanise them. But life without hope is hard, which I think in large part It's why this last year has actually been so hard for so many people. Uh, Alongside the the, the sadness of of lost loved ones, alongside the fear, the anxiety, the frustration, alongside relational isolation, there's there's simply for many people a hopelessness. A hopelessness that means we just don't know how long this will go on for. It's the uncertainty, isn't it? Does that resonate with you? Is that maybe why this last year has been so hard for you? I wonder what has your what has your hope been like? What's been driving you to keep you going? What's what's driving you to get out of bed each morning? If indeed you make it out of bed. What is What has captured your heart? What have you been longing for? What story is playing over your life that's keeping you pressing on? 
what's driven you? It's interesting, isn't it? Now that vaccines are being spoken of, it, is that it? Is that what we've been waiting for? Have they been our hope? The, the news of injections that will probably, probably protect us from it? Assuming they can roll them all out in time and assuming they work. Has that been our hope or, or has our hope been the promise of hopefully seeing some family at Christmas, three households, whatever it is, for five days? Has that been our hope or, or is it just simply to take our foot off the work pedal for a bit because maybe we've been busier than ever this year? Maybe our industry has not slowed down, it's sped up. Or, or maybe it's simply to grit our teeth and stoically bear it and keep going until it's over. A, a day at a time, a week at a time, a month at a time for as long as it takes. Has that been our hope? You see, the Bible knows that hope is not simply a luxury. Hope is not an added extra, particularly when the people of God are struggling. Hope is not luxury. Hope is fundamental. It's striking as you as you read various bits um, through the Bible when God's people are struggling, you you see that hope is foundational. Think of Peter's first letter, for example. I, I know connect on a Thursday. They're studying one Peter. Peter wants to keep them going each day. He wants them to remain faithful and resolute and steadfast. And and what does he do? He he points them back to the resurrection, and so points them ahead to Jesus coming back. Or think of 1 Thessalonians, the end of each chapter, you spotted there's hope there. The reality of the future shaping the now. Or again, you read Hebrews, another church under pressure, tempted to throw in the towel, tempted to, to wave the white flag and say we've had enough. And the writer keeps on about hope. The, the story of the gospel keeps on going. Hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. So let me ask again. What's your hope at this time? I, I don't mean what ought your hope be in or what's the right answer or what are you meant to say when you're in church or watching church or whatever it is we're doing now. But what is it actually in? What's kept you going? What's been your hope for 2020? And of course, there's a sense in which those shorter term hopes, that the wanting the vaccine, the wanting to see family, the wanting it just to end are, are important. But I do think the Bible would gently ask us some questions about our, our bigger hopes, the bigger things that ought to drive us, regardless of our circumstances, the, the underlying future reality that keeps us going. Or have we lost sight of them a little bit this last year? Has the, has the pressure of daily life, has the reality, the mess of 2020, the little stories of frustration and pain and conflict and anxiety, have they squeezed out the bigger story that there is more to come? I have to be honest and say, I, I find it a really hard sermon to write for a variety of reasons. But I do wonder if it's because in part, I've lost a bit of sight of that bigger hope. I've got too caught up in BBC News and vaccines and tears and lockdowns and how are we going to do church and all that kind of stuff. The, and the little stories, the little things have overshadowed the big thing. The little hopes of vaccines and going into other people's houses and maybe we can meet together at Christmas have meant my eyes have come off the bigger, more important and indeed more certain hope that the Bible spells out for us. 
And so that's why we're going to be spending the next three short weeks, really, in Isaiah. Um, as Phil already mentioned, it's Advent, and historically Advent is, is a time for the church to look ahead, both to consider back then God's promises to his people in sending Jesus. We, we stand with them as they were looking ahead to Christ. But also for us now to consider God's promises to his people in Jesus coming back again. And Isaiah is a prophecy. It's a huge book full of hope, full of God giving his people promises. In our verses for this morning that Arthur read, God gives his people a promise. It's a picture. It's something to inspire them, something to challenge them, something to keep them going. And did you spot what the picture was? It's a picture of a city. Before we get there, let's just back up a little bit, because I'm aware that for some of us, um, this part of the Bible can be a bit confusing. And we're not quite sure what's going on or where we are. Um, Isaiah was an Old Testament prophet. He was a, a mouthpiece of God. God used him and spoke through him to his people. And Isaiah came after Solomon, which means after the nation of Israel had split into two. And he worked in the smaller southern kingdom of Judah from around 740 BC. That's about seven centuries before Jesus. Do you remember the, the kingdom splits under Solomon? And you've got a big, larger northern kingdom of Israel in, in the north, 10 tribes. They're soon to be taken over by the Assyrians. And then in the south, you've got Judah, including Jerusalem, two tribes. And for now, they are safe. For now. But the situation in Israel when Isaiah was ministering to the people wasn't a good situation. It was a really dark place. Many of God's people seem, seem to have turned their backs on him. Many were simply living for themselves. Many were religious in one sense, but simply going through the motions, doing the actions, ticking the boxes, keeping up appearances. But in reality, their hearts were far from God. Actually, you get a glimpse of that in chapter one of Isaiah. You see what kind of a city Jerusalem is. Um, let me just give you a few verses to give examples of that. Um, for example, uh, this is chapter one, verse 12. When you come to appear before me, God says, who has asked this of you? This trampling of my court. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your, your incense is detestable to me, says God. New moons, Sabbaths and convocations. Are, I can't bear your worthless assemblies, your, your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals. I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening because your hands are full of blood. It's terrifying, isn't it? These were a people worshipping God, or so they thought. And yet because their hearts are far from him, he's not listening. Or a bit further on, you see how it's kind of trickled out into the rest of the city, the rest of their culture. Verse 21, see how the faithful city has become a prostitute. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her. But now murderers. Did you see the people of God should have been a light to the nations? The people of God were meant to show a watching world what their good God was like. And now... Now they were just living in darkness. Now they were living just like the world around them. They were just blending in. That's the situation that Isaiah is writing into. 
But then by the time we reach chapter two, our verses for this morning, the whole tone changes. And we hear this wonderful description of this ideal city. God shows them what is to come. This is what you are like, chapter one. But this is what is to come, chapter two. And it's a city and it's beautiful. In the place of darkness, there is now light. Light both in terms of goodness rather than evil, but also in terms of revelation rather than foolishness. It's a place where people crowd around the word of God. Wanting to hear what God says to them and so be changed by his word. Which means in the place of war, then there now is peace. There'll be no need for any weapons. There'll be no division, no arguing, no anger, no escalation. Just just reconciliation. It, it means you put on the news at 10 and you check on your BBC News app and it's, it's only ever good news. Don't you long for a world like that? Isn't that the kind of hope you could live for? Isn't that the kind of hope that would get you out of bed each morning? That 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 big reality, that big story, shaping our, our little realities, our little stories, captivated by that truth, and it changes everything. Let's zoom in a little closer. Uh, did you notice, as Arthur read it for us, there is a, a gathering element and then there is a going element. The people gather and come, and then the people go. It's gathering firstly, and do you see that there in verse two, the nations, first of all, will stream to it. Or as people or peoples come, verse three, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. It's a glimpse of the end when all the nations, every tribe and language and tongue will gather around the Lord. All the people. And why do they gather? They gather because they want to hear God's living word. They want to hear him speak. And where does he speak from? He speaks from the highest of the mountains. Do you see that? It means he exalted above all the hills. It's a, it's a picture of his greatest authority, greatest dominion. He is the one to bow down to. He is the ruler over all. But it would have sounded weird to them because it's worth being reminded again that Israel was not a big player at this point. They were not the winners. They were not on the, the right side of history. In the scheme of things, they were just a small fish in an enormous pond. They were a tiny tiddler, worshipping an obscure, lesser-known deity amongst a, a pantheon of better options. They were feeling very small, just as we easily can. No doubt the faithful people of God in Jerusalem, of whom there were a few, were feeling increasingly anxious and overshadowed. That The Assyrians, the Babylonians, any of the other superpowers looming over them, they see what happens in the north and they think, is that going to be us in the south too? Is, is, our, is it over for us? Is our end on the horizon? And yet Isaiah's vision is one in, in which their God is the God. They win. All the other gods and all the other little hills are seen to be impotent, useless, false.
And what do the people of God come for? What do these people from all the nations gather around the mountain city to hear? Well, verse three, he will teach us his ways. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. You see, just as at creation, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, God's word is central and foundational in informing and shaping a world. Well, so the same is here. At the new creation, God will not stop speaking and bringing life and bringing transformation. At the heart of God's kingdom is his word. And it's a powerful word because having gathered, then they go. So there's gathering and then there's going. And you see, people are now right with God. He has spoken and everything has changed, which leads to them being right with each other. God, God speaks and relationships are transformed. Again, have a look at verse four. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will take up sword against nation. So will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. I have to admit to you, I made the, um, the mistake this week, probably more than once, of clicking on the comments section online. And, and, and I know you should never do that. And you know you should, you should never do that, but we still do it, don't we? People are just so angry. Angry and mean to each other. Perhaps it's worse because of lockdown anxiety and living in such polarised times. Angry people who seem angry all the time, using their words as weapons, lashing out seeking to belittle and squash them. And there are nations at war as well at the moment. There have been thousands of lives lost in 2020 in different areas, different wars around our, our world. And yet just imagine it, war will be a thing of the past. You don't need swords, you need plowshares. You don't need spears, you need pruning hooks. You, nations not taking up sword against nation. Indeed, no training for war anymore. War from start to finish is finally done. You don't need a defence budget. There's just harmony. And it's a transformation, isn't it? You see, from, from fighting to farming, people no longer seeking to bring death to one another, but rather to bring life. It's a glimpse of life as it was meant to be. All is well. The sense in which it's a return to Eden again, to harmony, to that image of, of restored horizontal relationships with each other because we have a restored vertical relationship with him. We're right with him. And so stuff on the horizontal gets sorted out as well. Isn't that the kind of hope to get you out of bed? Isn't that kind of vision, that kind of reality, that kind of story, something to, to motivate us to keep going? You know, I guess the question is, when is Isaiah talking about? Well, verse two tells us in the last days. And you say, ah, when is that? And I say, that's a good question. When do we mean by the last days? 
Well, I take it for the people of Isaiah's day, when they heard the last days, they believed in a season when all future prophecy would come to fruition. But essentially, it would take place all at the same time. And so when Jesus arrives, his disciples and others believe that it was then that he would set up his kingdom. The king has come. The Messiah is here. Let's start ticking boxes with these prophecies. Because that is what the prophecies say will happen. But what became clear, though, is it wasn't quite as simple as that. It's a little more complicated. You see, the first coming of Jesus, the incarnation, was ultimately and finally seen for the cross and dealing with sin. And then he, he rises again and he, he's ascended. And we begin to think, ah, but some of these prophecies from the Old Testament, they have not been completed yet. We've not seen them in their fruition yet. And so when he comes back again, the second coming, as we were thinking about with Advent with Phil a moment ago, when he comes again, as he's promised he would, that will be the time for judgment and setting up this earthly kingdom. That is when all the boxes will be ticked. That is when we will see everything fulfilled. Sometimes we talk about it like this. You're, you're on a mountain walk and there you are plodding your way to the top and you're removing layers because if you're honest, you're getting a bit sweaty and you're, you're chomping on Mars bars to give you the energy boost to keep you going. Feet are beginning to ache, but it will be worth it because there will be a view at the top and it will be amazing. It will be extraordinary. And finally you get there and you reach the top. Only to find that out of the fog and the mist ahead, there's another peak and you're only halfway there. And you thought you were done, but what turned out to be the, the summit wasn't actually the summit. It was just a partial summit. Well, so it is in a way with prophecies that we see through the Bible. It became with, clear with Jesus that the incarnation, that his first coming, well, not all the prophecies were fulfilled by him then. But they will be to, in the time to come. His arrival was just the first mountain. Indeed, his cross and resurrection would be another mountain and still his return will be another mountain. Which means, when is Isaiah talking about? Well, we're still looking ahead in a sense. We're still waiting. We're still hoping. We're still longing for peace. We're longing for that kind of reality. We're longing for that kind of horizontal peace where wars are finished. Because we look around now and we still see nations fighting nations. We still see enormous defence budgets. We still see that people are not flooding to hear the word of the Lord from every tribe, tongue and, tongue and nation. We still see wars at all levels of society. We still know that the comments threads ought to be avoided. And so in one sense, it, it, it's to come. When is Isaiah talking about? He's talking about the future. But I do wonder, you know, even though we've not reached the top of the final mountain, I think there are elements that we can enjoy now. There are tantalising glimpses of Isaiah 2, 1 to 5 in our reality now. Actually, you saw them first with Jesus. You saw people crowding round. You saw transformed lives. People flooded to him and then left change. They, they gathered and then they went. But I wonder as well if it works for us at church too. A partial fulfilment of Isaiah 2, 1 to 5 is seen in us. It, it's that weekly gathering and going again for us. 
we we gather together each week virtually at this point but people from all over the place all kinds of backgrounds and stories all kinds of tribes and tongues and language and nation all kinds of situations and skeletons all kinds of things that we bring but people from all over the place gathering why well because we want to hear God speak to us because we know that he is a God who loves to speak we want to reflect upon his word together we want the gospel to to form us and to shape us and to transform us and to mold us and to make us into the likeness of the Lord Jesus which means that after we've gathered then we go and it ought to be going in reconcilia- reconciliation, going without wars towards one another, going in a manner of forgiveness and kindness and peace. Verse five, walking in the light of the Lord together. It's as if it's as if church now ought to be a glimpse of that hope to come that city to come. We're the first fruits, we're the the show home of the new reality, a hint of what is to come then. And actually, as you reflect upon verse five of Isaiah two, of walking in the light, I wonder if Paul picks that idea up and riffs off it as he writes to the church in Ephesus, wanting them to live, to, to walk as light in the darkness. Let me read a bit to you. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. This is um, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. Do you see, we're to be a a glimpse now of that reality then. And maybe even more than that, maybe as we go walking in the light of the Lord, transformed, shaped, moulded, made by God's word, remade by God's word, maybe, maybe we are to be transformative as well. Maybe the light in us shines into others. As we are different, as we are light because we know the true light, maybe we bring light into dark places because Jesus has changed us. As Jesus calls us, we are to be city on a hill. We are to let our light shine. So let me ask again, what, what gets you up in the morning? What story has captured your heart these last few months? What has kept you going this this year, this season? Indeed, what will keep you going this month, this Advent? Don't, Don't forget the big story. Don't forget that our God is not done yet. Don't forget that there is more to come. And let that more to come shape our each and every morning. Let me pray for us. 
Lord, we thank you. Thank you that you're a God who makes promises. And we pray that those promises would be our hope, our fundamental, our foundational hope. So we thank you for answered prayers as we look at this last year. We thank you for vaccines. We thank you for things improving. And yet we pray that those little things would not detract from the big hope that we have in you. And Lord, might we be a glimpse of what is to come in just a tiny way as a church, as we as we gather and as we go each week, as we gather to hear your words and as you work in us and as you shape us and you mould us and then we go, might we be light in the darkness. Help us, please, to remember the hope that we have and so to live in the light of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.